Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hello, I'm Chris. I'm a pastor at Compass. I'm thrilled you're with me, as always. Uh, And today we're talking about tradition. Often our traditions are these things that have been handed down to us, things like holiday traditions or family traditions, religious traditions. And, And some of our traditions are things that we've developed on our own. My family has traditions, and we actually have a tradition of eating crab legs on Christmas Eve. I don't know why. We just did it one time, and it felt right. And so now we just keep doing it. To the point where not eating crab legs on Christmas Eve feels totally wrong, like we're missing something. And that's kind of what tradition is all about. It's about identifying the right thing to do and then creating this ongoing process in order to do it and repeat it. Since we're talking about Christmas, let me give you another example. Every year during the holiday season, artists release a bunch of new Christmas songs. Literally hundreds of new songs and new versions of old classics are released every year. And that gives us, the consumers, the opportunity to decide which songs we like and we want to hear again, and which ones we don't. The songs we like will become classics, and they'll get played every year. The songs we don't like will end up in the dustbin of holiday history, which is why we hear All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey every Christmas, and why we don't hear This One's for the Children by the New Kids on the Block. I mean, both of those songs are about 30 years old, but we've decided as a culture that one is right enough to become a holiday holiday tradition and one isn't. It's the exact same reason that we don't hear the redneck 12 days of Christmas, as classic as you may think it is. At heart, tradition is developed because we've all identified what we think is right and what we think is wrong, and we wanna repeat the right thing. Crab legs at Christmas, felt right one time, so we repeated it. Mariah Carey felt like the right way to feel Christmassy once, so we listened to her every year. Traditions develop so that we can keep doing the things that we think are right and avoid doing the things that are wrong or not as good. Now, in light of this understanding of tradition, it can be easy to see why religious tradition is so powerful. Because if tradition is about repeating right things and avoiding wrong things, there's literally no better place for it to take root than in religion, where, I mean, the primary focus of religion is navigating right and wrong or managing sin. If sin, however it is defined by religion, can be managed by building tradition, then it's no surprise that religion is full of them or that we treat our religious traditions as sacred. And and tradition, I think, is also appealing to religious people because it doesn't just create a framework for how to manage my sin, but it creates a framework for how other people should manage theirs. And so now we we can tell not just what actions are right and wrong, but we can tell what people are right and wrong by whether or not they fit into our religious framework of proper sin management. So, today... We're gonna talk about religious tradition. Or maybe it's better to say we're going to question tradition. I wanna ask some questions. I wanna ask this. Does my tradition of sin management work? How should we respond to other people's sin? And, And does my tradition line up with the way of Jesus? 
And I'm gonna tell you right up front that today's message is big, with lots of big thoughts, okay? It's gonna challenge some of your assumptions about Jesus and about following him. And it all starts here in Matthew 9, 14. It says that one day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? So, as always, to understand the heart of what's happening here in this gospel account of Jesus' life, we need to understand the context and the background of the first century Jewish world. So, when we read this, we see John's disciples asking Jesus why Jesus and his crew don't fast. And it would be easy for us to assume that this is just a matter of how often they engage in, you know, certain optional religious practices. Because for us, I mean, fasting is just another spiritual discipline that we engage in, if and when we want to. And so it's easy for us to think that John's disciples maybe just view themselves as a little, as a little bit more righteous than Jesus's crew. But at the heart of this question they're asking are some deep concerns that Jesus didn't treat sin seriously. So fasting in the ancient Jewish world, it wasn't an optional activity that you did in order to get closer to God. Fasting was an essential part of dealing with their sin. See, the Jewish people, they observed six festivals to commemorate God's salvation. And only one of the six required fasting. And that was the Day of, uh, day of Atonement. And that's described here in Leviticus 16. On the 10th day of the appointed month in early autumn, you must deny yourselves. Neither native-born Israelites nor foreigners living among you may do any kind of work. This is a permanent law for you. On that day, offerings of purification will be made for you, and you will be purified in the Lord's presence from all your sins. It will be a Sabbath day of complete rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. This is a permanent law for you to purify the people of Israel from their sins, making them right with the Lord once a year. The Day of Atonement was an annual holy day in which the people of Israel made sacrificial atonement for their sins. Sacrifices were made in the temple year-round to purify the people, but the Day of Atonement was different because it was the one time of year when the sins of the people were actually made right or atoned for. It was a serious and sacred event that included everyone in Israel not working. It included everyone denying themselves food or fasting. And for the ancient Jewish people, fasting was not some optional religious activity that only righteous people did. It was a requirement for the atonement of their sin. Fasting was a necessary part of repentance, a prerequisite to forgiveness. Fasting was a solemn and central part of dealing with sin. And to not take fasting seriously was to not take sin seriously. And because it was such an important part of sin management, I mean, the Pharisees, they built a tradition of not only fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement, they added more and they fasted twice a week. They wanted to cover their bases. And John's disciples, because they also took sin very seriously, they did the same thing. Now, that's background context, but there's something else I want to point out about the placement of this story that we're reading in Matthew. Now, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he put three stories together, starting in Matthew chapter 9. And each of these stories talk about how Jesus approached sin in the lives of other people. 
In the first story, Jesus told a paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven. Now, bear in mind, this man came to get healed. He didn't ask for his sins to be forgiven. He didn't repent. He didn't acknowledge his sin in any way. But Jesus, in defiance of the sacrificial temple system, he just offered this guy blanket forgiveness. Story one. Story two, like we talked about last week, Jesus called a a tax collector and notorious sinner named Matthew to follow him. And yes, it's the same Matthew that wrote the gospel we're reading today. Now, Matthew didn't ask to follow Jesus. And there's no indication from this story that he repented of his sin or acknowledged it in any way. But Jesus called him and then went to a party with him along with a bunch of other tax collectors and notorious sinners. And notorious sinners is a term that is often used for prostitutes. So, Matthew paints a picture of Jesus who, as a person who forgives the sins of people who didn't ask for it, And as a person who hangs out at parties with sinners who haven't shown any outward acts of regret or repentance for their sin, we see a Jesus who feasts instead of fasts. And this brings the questioning of John the Baptist's disciples into greater clarity. Because on the surface, they were asking why Jesus and his disciples didn't fast. But what they were really asking was this, Jesus, why don't you take sin seriously? In their mind, A man who preached repentance should lead people into the proper acts of repentance. Things like fasting, mourning. Feasting is like the last thing people need to do in order to get serious about their sin. And the perception of Jesus was that he tolerated sinful behavior in other people because he didn't take sin seriously. But look at Jesus' reply in verse 15. It says this. Jesus replied, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins, so that both are preserved. So there's a couple cool things in Jesus' reply. And first of all, I love how Jesus is like, hey, hey, hold up. Who said that they're never going to fast? Just because they aren't fasting now doesn't mean they never will. Okay, you made an assumption. Back off a bit. But Jesus' big move is when he talks about not putting new wine into old wineskins or patching new cloth onto old clothes. Now, we don't need to jump into the science of how all that stuff works to get that Jesus is saying that he's introducing something totally new. That what he's doing is the new wine and the new cloth. And the new thing he's doing, it isn't compatible with the old thing. So what is the new thing? Well, let's go back to that second story that we talked about last week and find out in Matthew 9, 13. Jesus said this, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Okay, let's go back to those three stories again, remember? Uh, Matthew put these things together to show Jesus' approach to sin. And the man who's paralyzed, the story we're in today, and the calling of Matthew. And right in the middle of that center story of calling Matthew, Jesus lays out his new approach, his new way. And it's this, mercy. 
This can seem so common to us, but for people who've been raised in the old tradition of sin management, it was a radical departure from what they knew. See, the old way of proper sin management, it looked like this, and this is what I call the four A's, okay? It starts with acknowledging your sin. You can't be forgiven unless you acknowledge your sin and admit that it's wrong. This requires guilt. And so guilt and acknowledgement of sin are step one. Step two, the second A, acts of repentance. This is the fasting, the self-denial, the sacrifice. In the old way of proper sin management, you have to demonstrate your repentance to show that you take sin seriously. Third, atonement. Once you've admitted your sin and demonstrated repentance with the appropriate sacrifices, you have atoned for it, at least until you sin again. But, but once you have received atonement, you are allowed the fourth and final step in the process, acceptance. Full acceptance into the religious community is based completely on your willingness and ability to complete the previous three steps first. And to maintain your acceptance in the community, you have to do this process of sin management over and over again. Wash, rinse, repeat. But Jesus decided it was time for something new, a radical new approach to sin, the mercy of God. And we see that mercy demonstrated when he forgave the paralyzed man's sin before the man had acknowledged it or even asked for forgiveness. We see that mercy when Jesus called Matthew to follow him. And then Jesus ate with Matthew before Matthew had committed any acts of repentance. For Jesus, the way to invite people into the kingdom of God was not to fast with the righteous, but to feast with the sinners. Because, here's the thing, Jesus' way of restoring sinners is radical mercy. For Jesus, the way to lead people into the kingdom of God was not to keep grinding them through the old sacrificial system of sin management, guilt, denial, and then eventually acceptance. Jesus' way was to start with acceptance. To show the mercy of God that isn't dependent on our begging, our fasting, our self-denial, our sacrifices, or even our acknowledgement of our own sin. And to take it a step further, Jesus not only says that he's doing a new thing by showing the mercy of God, but he says that the way of mercy is absolutely incompatible with the old tradition of sin management. That to go back to the old way of repentance would be like sewing a new patch onto old clothes. It would just make things worse. Jesus' way of mercy is not a patch that we can just slap on to our old traditions of sin management that, that demand guilt and sacrifice for atonement. Mercy destroys the old ways of dealing with sin, ways like judgment and sin management. Judgment and sin management are not compatible with mercy and forgiveness. And do you know what Jesus had to highlight the incompatibility of the old and the new ways? I mean, you'd think that he could just say, I'm doing a new thing, and then his followers would just follow along with it, right? But we don't. Jesus launched this new way of mercy 2,000 years ago, and yet we still somehow insist on going back to our old ways of sin management. 
We require people to atone for their sin before they can be part of the kingdom of God as we see it. We demand that they believe and that they behave before they can belong. It's the power of religious tradition that we keep going back to, even when it's incompatible with the values of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus doesn't say, first believe, then behave, and then you can belong. Jesus says, belong, belong, belong. If you're a religious person and all of this sounds scary to you, that's okay. It was really scary to the religious people in Jesus's day too. And if it sounds to you like this means it's, we're not about taking sin seriously, you also aren't alone in thinking that. One of the primary criticisms of Jesus during his ministry was that he was a friend of sinners, not a compliment, by the way, and that he didn't treat sin seriously enough. Interestingly, that was also a criticism that followed the early church after Jesus' death and resurrection because of the radical way in which they prioritized mercy and rejected the old religious traditions of sin management. Because of that, people thought the first church didn't care about sin. And is that so bad? Isn't it better that we be known for what we are for rather than what we're against? And if our entry into the kingdom of God is based on his unlimited mercy, then why wouldn't we also freely give his mercy to others without any limit? We didn't earn it. It isn't ours to distribute as we see fit, making sure that only the right people get it. I mean, Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 8. He said, give as freely as you have received. That's pretty straightforward. God gave me a ton of mercy, so I should give everyone else a ton of mercy. And why not? I mean, do I really think that we are any better than anyone else when God poured out his mercy on me? Do I really think that I deserved God's mercy more than anyone else? Or, or do I think that somehow I earned his mercy with my incredible sin management and therefore other people need to earn his mercy the same way? We've all sinned. And we all need repentance. But Jesus changed what that means. The old way of repentance is sin management. Do the right things, don't do the wrong things. Feel guilty and atone. Do enough of that and you can be part of the community fully. But Jesus's new way of repentance is not about managing your sin. Instead, it's about adopting the ways of his kingdom ways of mercy and grace, ways of loving your enemy and putting others before yourself, ways of relationship, not religious activity or knowledge or doctrine. At the end of the day, the new thing God is doing is inviting every single one of us into a new kingdom. It's a kingdom where we live like Jesus lived, where we think like he thought and do what he taught. Jesus is doing so much more than sin management. He's doing new eternal life, life that includes both forgiveness and fullness. So just to wrap up, I'd like you to ask yourself three questions. First, do I show radical mercy to those I see as sinners? Do people in your life just belong or do they have to believe and behave before you can fully accept them? Are you uncomfortable? when you see the mercy of God extended to people who don't seem serious about their sin, 
because it might look like we're just ignoring their bad behavior. Or are you able to actually see the person Jesus is welcoming without condition? Second, ask yourself this. Do I really believe Jesus showed radical mercy to me? You see, your belief about who Jesus is and what he did, it affects every part of your faith in life. So do you really believe that he showed you radical mercy? Or do you, by the way you live and the way you perceive the sin of other people, do you show that you're really just living an old way of sin management? Without believing God has poured out his undeserved mercy on you, it's nearly impossible to pour out undeserved mercy on others. And then finally, what do I need to do to show radical mercy to others? What does it look like in your context, at your job, in your school, in your home? Jesus' mercy was so radical that when he lived it out, good, righteous, religious people thought that he was soft on sin. Like feasting with sinners when they should be fasting. Like making room at his table instead of making them get serious about their sin. Jesus' mercy was so great that it made religious people think he was endorsing sinful behavior. And maybe, just maybe, if people think the same thing about us, that's how we will know that we are sharing the mercy of God too. So this week, go, show mercy, show love. May his love and mercy pour out of us. May God bring people into your life who maybe before you would have pushed into the grinder of proper sin management. And yet today, you can now show them mercy in the same way that God showed you unlimited mercy. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.